masterminds our relationship had we seen clearly had we seen clearly we wouldn't have done it the Dalai Lama teaches that everybody wants to be happy that one of the things that really causes us sometimes when in those wonderful moments of grace when we recognize that everyone is just like us what we recognize in the just like us is that everybody wants to be happy everybody wants to have a contented heart nobody purposely gets up and thinks I'm going to make a mess out of my life today and purposely do unskillful things we do often do that but we are making bad judgments about what will make us happy the most skillful unskillful acts really are happen with people thinking this will make me happy vengeance is sweet that's one of those things that people say vengeance is not sweet vengeance is just vengeance and actually it's you know accompanied by a lot of heat and then afterwards who knows what and it carries with it an accumulation of anger that then comes somewhere else and if we saw clearly we would really have a forgiving heart i want to talk some about telling the truth um it's a continuation of a uh, right speech because one of the things about right speech is truthful speech it's also a uh, a uh, segue into that <laughs> monastic code that i said i would teach about uh how we are uh, instructed to admonish each other one of the five instructions for pointing out someone else's um pointing out something about another person that you think is an area of concern that they should address is in truthfulness will i speak not in falsehood so to really say what is the whole truth in relationship people i think so frequently do not tell the whole truth we say hyperbole we say you never pay any attention to my needs now that's probably not true you know even if people really are quite self-centered the chances are that they sometimes pay attention to our needs what we probably mean to say with that is i'm really upset to discover that even though i thought you loved me and were interested in me you're way more interested in yourself than i imagined otherwise i would have never hooked up with you <laughs> but that's probably closer to the truth than you never uh are interested in my needs the same as when you say you always did this and this and this the chances are you don't always do it because if you always did it we wouldn't be with them still probably they do it more what we mean to say is you do that way more than i'm comfortable having you do that but not always so that there's a kind of impeccability of language that that makes things true or not true and as soon as we don't tell the whole truth then we can fight with each other because if we say we always then the other person can say or oh, you never and then but well 3 weeks ago tuesday i did this thing for you so then we have a discussion about a level of always sometimes never rather than where the discussion really is where i feel unseen or unheard or unmet in my need 
So the business of truthfulness, both in carefulness of speech, also truthfulness about saying the truth about one's own self. Uh, I think we're much... I think for myself, um, I think the hardest job is to keep telling myself the truth of my own experience. It's easy to look at somebody else and say, you know, the truth is, you do this, that, and that. But we don't see so much or are not so eager to see some of the truths about our own self that uh, we need to look at. Somebody told me in the last couple of years, great line, I've loved it. Um, said, I don't know who it was who discovered water, but I'm sure it wasn't a fish. You know, that, uh, that it's too close to where you are. The stuff about yourself. In Dharma terms, uh, there's a story that, who knows, it may be apocryphal by now, but uh, maybe it never happened, but it's as if it did because we've told this story enough times that in some early retreat center, early in the morning when people came in to sit at 5.30 in the morning, they saw that some retreatant in the middle of the night had written on the blackboard, probably in the middle of the night in some sitting of their own, all self-knowledge is bad news. <laughs> and uh, it's actually an important insight, both in, in Dharma practice and life practice, that the stuff about ourselves that we like to know, we know. You know? I mean, everything... Did that? I, I want to talk in a little bit about how your experience was in talking to each other about eulogies, or at least my, did that work? Did you like that? Yeah. Uh, that's the sort of stuff that we like to think about in ourselves and tell about to each other. You know that the the other stuff is what we call in psychology our shadow. You know, we put it behind us. And we can't see our own shadow. And we don't like it so much when someone else points out our own shadow to us. But really, if we're going to grow most fully, it's helpful if we can hear. If, if my teachers can tell me, don't do that, and it's okay, I won't. And another teacher can say, try harder. And I think I'm really trying hard, but it's okay, I will. I have to think about what's the context in which my intimate can say, try harder or don't do that and I can have that same place of assuming that they are telling me that out of love and uh, not get so frightened and closed up about it if I could really welcome the truth in a certain way I think we actually do you know that there was a a time back where I thought I was going to write an article and I didn't know whether, well, it, it could have been either in a psychology journal or a uh, meditation journal, and I was going to uh, call it Don't Duck. I was going to use that as the universal instruction for, uh, for psychotherapy and for mindfulness practice, that what we want to do is we want to be here for our experience, upright in it, Uh, to be able to see it. We don't have to hide from it or cringe from it or pretend it's not there. Uh, That we could just really stay here and say, oh, and that's also true, and that's also true, and that's also true, and have a big enough context of uh, confidence or self-assurance 
or dedication to the truth or dedication to the possibility that with this truth I'll get better, my life will be better, to be able to stay through feeling and learning the hard things about ourselves and saying, whoops, you know, back to the drawing board. I thought I had that finished, but I guess I didn't. To work on it a little bit more. Comes up in psychotherapy where people want to change the subject and you say, wait a minute, let's just go back to what we were saying a minute before. And I noticed your body stiffen about that, was it? We want to talk about that a little bit more. I noticed, in, and certainly when I came to do meditation practice, I noticed that here comes a feeling and a thought and a memory and I think to myself, when is the lunch bell going to ring? Because you'd like to leave that feeling and thought and memory. And discovering by and by that that you can't leave. I mean, there's no place to go. It's always here. The, really the most, uh, in a sense, the most efficient or the most expeditious. And actually the most liberating thing to do is to stay right here. Say, okay, and this, and this, and also this. And it's okay how to do that. I actually think that not only is it okay, but it's energizing. That somehow an awareness of the truth of situations, even the truth of our own shadow, when we really hold it in a balanced mind, it's quite exciting. It's not as if we discover, I think that yogi is wrong, whoever wrote on the blackboard, all self-knowledge is bad news. I think it's actually liberating. When you first hear about it, you think, oh dear, not that too. I really have to cop to that also. Also this, but there's something about it, particularly about saying, in this and this way I haven't seen clearly. And I've been struggling to pretend that I do see clearly or that I do behave this impeccably, but I actually don't. That is actually energizing. I forgot a line of a story I told you this morning, and it's actually the most important line. Remember I told you about Mohammed driving me to the airport? And um, we had this back-and-forth conversation, telling me how to pray, how to stand, how to face, what to say. He said, the, actually, the most important thing is that you say it from a place of knowing we're in trouble. We're all in he didn't say it this way, I'm paraphrasing. He said it's as if we've been thrown into the ocean and we don't know how to swim. Say so we're all in a life that is more challenging, that is continually challenging. You swim here, you can't swim there, or you swim there, and this. yet the next wave, here it comes. <coughs> but he was really excited about telling me this, and I was really excited about listening. And we're riding along, and I saw Wendy's off the side of the highway. <laughs> And I said, Mohammed, you want to go off and get some coffee? And he said, no, I'm awake. <laughs> and that's really the most important line of that whole story. I actually think we wake ourselves up by telling ourselves the truth. And we keep ourselves asleep when we keep pieces of our truth walled off from ourselves. I really believe that. Somebody in that conference that I mentioned to you about spiritual teachers was talking about the reason that people come to spiritual practice, and this is not just Buddhist practice, any kind of spiritual practice. So people come to spiritual practice for one of two reasons. They either come to wake up or they come to stay asleep. And I think it's tremendously important. I've been so inspired by that thought 
that since I've been back, I've been coming every week on Wednesday morning and challenging people and saying, listen, let's, not make, sure, let's make sure that we don't come here and start to fall asleep. You know, it's pleasant here. We sit quietly, it's nice, it's beautiful. We're building these beautiful new buildings here. The food is nice, the peace and quiet. It's lovely to sit in quiet, hear a little nice dharma, some good stories, makes you feel good. I mean, I mean, all, all spiritual stories are good stories that the nature of the heart is intrinsically kind, that generosity is our nature. I mean, I actually believe that stuff. I mean, it's really true. Uh, I think it's the potential of the heart to be kind. I think that the, the, the job in life is to overcome the narcissism that we come into the world with as babies. That's appropriate narcissism. Because you need to take and get cared for into an adult mode of sharing and maybe into, eventually in this lifetime, a bodhisattva mode of completely sharing and loving. I think there's a continuum from the narcissism of infants and toddlers and babies to the complete altruism of saints and bodhisattvas and sadikim. but And we are somewhere in the middle of that. And we have the possibility of facing in that direction. And we have the possibility of falling back into self-centered behavior. I think it's marvelous to think that we have this continuum of behavior. When we get frightened, we rush back into our private lives. And when we're not frightened, we're able to be out and be generous and loving and kind. One of the things that I think about is because I think I, I, I trust that that's true and it's wonderful to hear about that and it makes you feel so inspired and the people who come here are very nice people and I, I say to my, my friends on Wednesday, let's not fall asleep about this. Let's not come here and get a hit of Dharma and some pleasant quiet sitting for two hours a week and then just go home and do our lives. Let's make a real dedication so that all of our lives is transformative. Not just that we hear it, but we do it. It's easy to get it, but it's hard to transform the heart because we have habits of the heart. So when say when the nature of mind or heart is generosity and kindness and benevolence and compassion and sympathetic joy, it is when it's clear and balanced and awake. It's not like that when it's confused and frightened and into its self-preservation mode. That, so it comes, with the, it comes with the package as a potential, but it requires a constant dedication to it. We don't get it done today, and then we don't have to do it tomorrow. We have to get up tomorrow and do it again. So I got really inspired by <coughs> that particular notion of coming to a spiritual venue to stay asleep or to wake up. And thought about, uh, I, I think about it a lot with Spirit Rock now, with Buddhism becoming uh, mainstream in a sense. Uh, that may be a little bit ahead of it, but uh, uh, in a certain sense it has. I, 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 I got a flyer in the mail yesterday that announced the opening of a thing called the Center for Mindful Living. Sounds wonderful. Uh, it's a Thich Nhat Hanh center. It's somewhere on the East Coast. And it talks about these practices being non-sectarian and non-denominational, which they certainly can be. When we teach here, I'd like to teach in the idiom of the Buddha because he had such a wonderful way of articulating what's a universal truth. 
And I think about the times when I began my practice uh, when it was very hard to go to a retreat because you had to normally go some distance. The retreat centers were rustic. Those of us who are old enough will get to be like, you know, the folks who talk about when the snow was whiter and the winters were colder and all the hard, and we had to walk 10 miles to school in the snow or whatever. So we'll tell stories about the times we went to retreat centers in completely rural places with one toilet for 35 people and one shower every five days or whatever it was, because we did that and slept on floors or nine people in a room or whatever. But there was no question in those days that actually everybody was in the business of waking up because it wasn't comfortable. So you went there because you really wanted to transform yourself. I mean, it was hard to be there. So one of my worries a little bit when we build this beautiful retreat center here is it'll get too easy to come and we'll forget that transformation is continuous and continuing hard work. So there's my little soapbox, little pitch for remain aware of... uh, But the goal of this is not just to feel better or live a comfortable life. And even today when we talk about living in a comfortable and gratifying way with a partner, really the goal of practice is liberation and an awakened, kind, compassionate heart all the time. All the better if we have a partner to do it with and share it with and use for our journey. But that's not the end of the journey. The end of the journey is a liberated mind and heart. So I wanted to talk some more about telling the truth. It's not so simple. I I had the, the worst teaching experience, I think, of my entire life. That might be hyperbole, but I'm a little dramatic. I have to check. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But A, very difficult. It's kind of like always and never. So having just said that, I have to be more careful. A very terrible teaching experience happened to me uh, 20 years ago. I was teaching uh, a thing called keeping a personal journal for personal growth, intensive journal keeping. How many people here ever did that Ira Progoff intensive journal keeping? I loved it. I practiced it for years, and I taught it for some years. And I went to teach once... uh, in a remote retreat center that's no longer in existence in Canada, um, kind of like an Esalen, uh, where people came for personal growth. But it was very remote, so that once you went, they had to go by seaplanes. And so it, it, it had a kind of excitement about it. It was like Yukon Medic or something, because uh, it was so hard to get there. And you really felt like you... I was very inspired about what I was teaching. And you flew in for a week and you had a group of folks who were there in residence doing a three-month transformation program. And you came in for a week. And so every week for 12 weeks, a different person would come in and teach their thing for a week. It's a great idea, you know. It's a wonderful model. And they lived in community, really being honest with each other and working in a gestalt model of tell the truth for which I have actually a lot of respect. Um, I said something the first night that I was teaching, which I still believe, but it was the wrong culture to say it into. 
uh, I was talking about keeping a personal journal. And I said one of the things about keeping a personal journal is uh, that you can really be completely honest with your own journal. And there are some secrets that perhaps you really are best off not telling. Something like that. And you're not ready to tell, or it wouldn't be the right thing to tell. And into that culture of openness and sharing, it was the wrong thing to say. And somebody said, do you mean with your most intimate person, with your husband, he doesn't know every single thing about you? You have a secret or two. I said, as a matter of fact, they do. Um, That was a very... My credibility went down tremendously as a teacher because it wasn't a thing that people got. I said, you know, there are things that it's not a time for him to know yet. Uh, I stumbled all over myself. I said, we have to be careful about what you tell people so that it should be truthful, but it should also be useful. But I had lost so much credibility on that very first night that it was just a really difficult week. I was trying to climb out of my credibility gap all week. Then I came home, and I was in a culture of people who believed that. So I came home after the week, and I started to check it out with a few of my friends. I said, wait a minute. Now, you want to give me a reality check on this? Does, do you, does your person know every single thing about you, or do you have a few secrets? And my sense is not that we keep secrets. My hope is that in an intimate, really trustful relationship, eventually there are no secrets. But eventually there are no secrets. I think actually that our relationships uh, grow in intimacy as they grow in sharing and in trust. I don't think you can have instant intimacy. You can have an instant rapport with somebody. I think that's how we fall in love. We have a kind of instant rapport. But I think that we build intimacy with shared truths about ourselves over time. It's kind of like, I will now show you, see all these cards, which I've shown you straight off. Now I have enough confidence that you're interested in me. I'll show you one more card and see if you're still in the game. I'm still here? As a matter of fact, I see that you took that card very well. I am now prepared to see another one of your cards. And eventually all the cards are on the table, but not the first minute. That one of the the first rule of those five rules of the Vinaya, of the monk's code, is in due season will I speak, not out of season. That means it's now the right time to tell the truth. It means it in the course of a whole relationship. Is that secret? Is this now time to tell that secret? <coughs> it means it for me in terms of uh, this current upset that I want to bring up and talk to you about is now a good time. One of the things that I tell people, this is the way it translates into daily life, is uh, instead of saying to somebody, of course, I'm sure you're way ahead of this, but that the first rule of a conversation that's going to be difficult is to say, sweetheart, I have something that's really important to talk to you about. Would now be a good time to do it? If not, when is the time? Because we need to do it. Let's make a time. 
I purposely said that thing about sweetheart, I need to, because when you say to a person, I need to talk to you, already the neurology fires, uh uh-oh. Nobody says that to somebody, I need to talk to you. We don't say, I need to talk to you to tell you how beautiful you are, or what a great, wonderful asset you are, and how much I love you. Nobody says that, they just say, I love you, and you're beautiful. They say, I need to talk to you, the mind knows, "Uh uh-oh, this is not a good news that I'm about to hear. So there's different ways, depending on how you speak to each other, but depending on people's vocabulary, you start by saying some equivalent of, this is okay, sweetheart, I need to talk to you. The message is, we're, don't be afraid, and I need to talk to you. So the message is, don't be afraid. The, uh, ex- the exercise that you did at lunchtime of telling people what you value in them and pointing out what you hope they value in you and having them corroborate that is the piece of the work that sets up the container that both people know, yes, yes, we really do admire each other, we really do love each other. This is really a consenting adult relationship. We've really volitionally chosen that, not by accident. So that we can then say to each other without the whole outlining of it, sweetheart, oh yeah, okay, this, I'm still in the condition of sweetheart. I need to talk to you about this. In due season will I speak, not out of season. In truthfulness will I speak, not in falsehood. That means really the whole truth of the situation, not hyperbole, not drama. The best that you know. Um, Gently will I speak, not harshly. I'm committed to the notion that we can say things in a way, use the words so that they're not frightening or abusive. Gently will I speak, not harshly. For his or her benefit will I speak, not for their loss. In kindness will I speak, not in anger. They're very easy. Those are monks' rules. In the Vinaya, I think they're people's rules. I used to have a little card with them, uh, which I kept in my office. And people would like that card, and they would take it home and Xerox it and blow it up and put it on their refrigerator. I thought we should make wallpaper out of that card. You know? I think it'd be great wallpaper. <coughs> Somebody said to me once, if, if I did all those things... Because the line that goes before that is, before admonishing anyone, one should reflect thus. In due season will I speak not out of season, in truth will I speak not in falsehood, gently will I speak not harshly for his I have benefit, not for their loss, in kindness will I speak not in anger. They said if I reflected on those, I would never admonish. But I don't think that's true. I think we admonish. I think we admonish carefully. I think, as a matter of fact, I'm committed to the notion that we can say anything to anybody, our parents, our children, our friends, our colleagues, our working peers, our intimates, if we do that. So what I think maybe would be good to do is if we sat a little bit... uh, 
just reflecting on those. Maybe part of the sitting, thinking about if there's something that's on your mind that you would have wanted to tell your partner or did tell or didn't tell the best, how it would be if you did it that other way. You can either think about that or you can just sit. One of the things that I believe is that when we put information in, it's in. And we can either think about it or just let it be there and rest (coughs) with it. We'll sit for 15, 20 minutes. And so in preparation for beginning to work, particularly <clears throat> with your partner, <coughs> and to come together again as a community, uh, if you can be in touch with whatever pleasure or delight uh, arises in you in recognizing that this is an extraordinary opportunity to do this kind of waking up work when you're ready to smile, uh, you can use that as a sign that you can open your eyes. good to smile at your person also. Smile at some other people too if you like. But I want to talk a little bit and then we'll do an exercise, just a, a wee bit. Because this is a lot of work to do in one day because what we talked about earlier uh, I hoped would build a context of reminding each other that it is not, uh, that there's a way in which we can do this work of waking up in couples as a we enterprise rather than a, a you and me, um, rather than a contentious uh, enterprise. One of the things that the Buddha taught, I love having all these insights from the Buddha in a relational workshop, using all these insights from uh, a monastic and a monastic community. When he was about to die in that very last teaching that he did, he said, above all, be sure not to have discord in the Sangha. Don't have a schism in the Sangha. (coughs) Now, I really interpret that as meaning that uh, his anticipating that there would be differences of opinion in the Sangha, as there were literally right after he died and made this whole impassioned plea for harmony in the Sangha. And immediately that he died, people had differing views about what it was that he said or he taught. So I think that he anticipated that that being the nature of how human beings are, it's not so much that there shouldn't be a difference of views, that there surely will be, but not to have a schism. That somehow if people could in their relationships uh, think of it as an enterprise that we do together, just as for the benefit of the Sangha, I will now bring up this concern that I have that uh, what I hoped we were doing before 
is more or less consolidating a, consolidating a sense of, for the benefit of our relationship, which seems meaningful and valuable to both of us, we will now bring up the following. So that context having been set, I thought we might uh, try to do an exercise where we came back into our partnered couples and uh, talked about perhaps something a little bit more difficult, maybe about a truth about ourselves that we want to say or something that we would like to tell the other person that we maybe haven't gotten quite ready to do, that we could figure out how to tell, not perhaps maybe enough there's a time for some explosive bombshell of a secret. It doesn't seem quite ready yet. But something about our relationship, I think, would be enhanced if I could point out to you and you could hear how important it would be for me for you to understand this about this aspect of our relationship. Something like that. In, you know, we've now determined it, uh, in due season. This is the season you came here today to do this. Gently and kindly and with good intent. Uh, I once told somebody when I was teaching about using those five uh, guidelines that I might say to my person um, something like, sweetheart, I need to talk to you about something that I anticipate may be difficult for you to hear, but it's tremendously important for the ongoing good health of our relationship, in which I have tremendous confidence and to which I am totally devoted. I have every intention of spending the rest of my life with you so that it's not a scare. You know, it's not an ultimatum, either you hear this or I'm out. It's not a good place to come from. So uh, you have to say, what is your intention? My intention is to enhance our relationship in which I have a lot of confidence, which I want to thrive. Um, what I'd like from you is to hear out all of what I'm about to say. I'd like you not to interrupt me. I'd like you to let me say my whole thing. It's tremendously important because if we feel we have you know, 30 seconds to make our case, we blurt it out and we don't exactly say it as truthfully as we could. If we have unlimited time, often as I'm talking about something that has seemed to me so difficult to bring up if I'm not rushed. As I'm talking about it, this gave me so much pain. In the middle, I remember, well, you know, you don't always do that, but sometimes you do that. The, the fact that I'm not holding it in and I don't have to do it in a hurry allows me to tell it truer and truer and truer as I tell it. I'd like you to listen to all of what I have to say. I'd like you to just listen without preparing a rebuttal as you're listening. And then when I'm finished with talking, I'd like you to take X amount of time, play the piano for a half hour, walk the dog around the block three times, do something before you get ready to respond. And then when you come to respond, I'll be open to hearing the whole of what you have to say, something like that. And then people say, you, you don't actually really do that, do you? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do. I mean... Uh, maybe not 30 minutes of playing the piano or, you know, take as, what, it, it, that's a, it, that's a design. It means take as long as you need to calm down from a defensive stance. I really think that the reason that we do not bring stuff up with people that's important to bring up is we're afraid that they'll be mad at us, that we brought it up. 
We hold up a mirror to somebody and we say, I think this is you. If it is them, they're mad to see it. If it's not them, they're mad that you've seen them wrong. That, that it, one way or another, it's going to require some talking up. Is this a true mirror of you? And we're afraid to make people mad at us because then they'll attack back. They'll feel it as an attack and attack back. So there's a, the, the, the real practice, I think, is the practice of non-defensiveness, which is very hard. So that we, if we do this at all, it's, you know, after three, we've been here for six hours. I'm hopeful that we now have been sitting in each other's aura for a little bit next to each other so we can feel each other's goodwill. So that we can say that to a person and the person can say, wow, well, it's not fun to hear that at all, but I'm keeping in mind that, you know, you really do love me and appreciate me. I hope that's not true what you said, but I'll try to think about it. And some variation of that, or even I do see it's true. Or the nine words that I learned from um, my friend David Zeller, who told me that this is the universal mantra for world peace. And if everyone were to be able to say these words and actually mean them, when they are the appropriate words to say, we would settle the whole business of world conflict. And the ten words are, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, please forgive me. And we should be able to do that. If we could do those ten words, to do any more, world peace. The reason we don't do it, there's manifold reasons why we don't do it. One of them is on that level of adversarial, you against me. We're afraid, I think, that if I say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, that that allows the other person to go for the jugular. And not only that, you made that mistake, I'll tell you three more mistakes that you made while I'm at it. You know, <laughs> that, uh, that somehow we have to trust the other person not to step on our glasses or go for the jugular. Or, you know, when we are down, to say, thank you very much for hearing what I had to say. A friend who uses a medical model, and he says dosage is tremendously important. Could be even the right drug. You take too much of it, it's not good. You could die. So you have to tell. You have to tell in the right dosage. Um, in the rains retreats in the fall, the monks tell each other what they need to bring up in public ceremony where everybody brings up what they need to confess about themselves or their complaints about other people. And it's seen for the health of the community, they come together and need to tell each other the truth. In 12-step meetings, people tell each other the radical truth. I am thinking one step ahead of 12-step. I'm tremendously impressed with the power of 12-step, of the culture of the 12-step program in which uh, you don't get censured, in which uh, a slip is a slip and is understood by the, the group as the reason that you're there, because we slip, we make mistakes. So that was a slip, and let me encourage you now not to slip again. It's really a culture of non-censure. It's not a culture of upmanship. I'm better than you. You slipped and I didn't. It's a culture that recognizes we all could slip. When I think about it, I used a little bit of the 
12-step model, although I don't know it personally from substance addiction. I think about it a lot in terms of hindrance addiction. Uh, I have uh, had, I like to tell people with great respect, I mean, this is not to trivialize the language, I'm a recovering fretter. Um, and I, the, if you probably recognize from the five hindrances teachings of the Buddha that we each of us have five traditional cloudy ways in which the mind responds to challenge. Some people, when they're beleaguered with challenge, look for something sensual to make them feel better. Sometimes it's a substance. Sometimes it's making phone calls, calling friends, uh, going out and spending a lot of money and getting new clothing or buying stuff or watching a lot of television or some kind of sensual pleasure. Um, some people, they get mad. When, short, when, when life challenges them, they get more irritable than usual. They get feisty and irritable because they got up out of the wrong side of the bed. And somehow, for the people who have that, they have at least for a while the thought that if they got up out of the wrong side of the bed, it's all right to let everybody else have it. You know, that, that, uh, that and say, well, you know, I'm just having a bad day. And so some people get irritable. Some people get tired. They say, I have to go home and take a nap now, you know. In relationship, it comes up with, I have to go meditate now. I can't discuss this important thing with you because it's my time for meditation. I have to go to my yoga class, you know. Uh, you can't fault somebody, well, you can, but it's difficult to fault somebody for being about to do some holy thing when actually they're doing it out of torpor and not enough energy to address the situation. Um, Actually, all of the hindrances play themselves out in relationship. You can say, I was challenged in our relationship, so I had this extra relationship with this other person because you didn't meet my needs. And my needs needed to be met, so I met them with somebody else. You know, that, uh, that's one of the ways in which lust plays itself out through a relationship. Or a relationship is challenging to me, so I'll fight with you for the type that fights. That's another way to exacerbate the situation if you don't see it as uh, just the, w- the way that that personality manifests. The torpor personality says, I need to meditate now or take a nap or we'll talk about this next week. The fretful personality, which is mine, worries about everything. Uh-oh, if you didn't like that about me, maybe you're going to leave me. Or if you didn't like that about me, maybe you don't like all these other things. How can I ever be sure you're going to like me? Maybe you don't like me at all. Maybe the fact that you're 10 minutes late in calling means you don't like me. Maybe it means you're not near a phone, but, you know, the fretful type. <laughs> that's a mild one. I mean, you can, if you're a champion fretter, you can really fret about really neutral situations, and it's a tremendously painful addiction. Anybody here has that addiction of worry about anything, when in doubt, worry? You know, that uh, just there's a neutral situation, but you could worry. It's an addiction. It's a, it's a mind habit that, you, that, is, that when challenged is open to change, like a substance addiction. Because we have it for a very, we have it for what, who knows what reasons, karma, genes, biology, uh, environment, our parents, our story. 
but it's open to mindful attention. And when we see it clearly, it becomes not us, and we don't have to do it. And say, oh, there comes that worried thought, but I'm going straight ahead. There comes that angry feeling, I don't have to express it. There comes that tremendous lust, it wouldn't be wise to act on it. I won't do it. It's there, it's that thing, but it's not me. It's just the characteristic pattern in which the mind reacts to difficult time. But I don't have to do it. It's as if I, people play music, but I don't have to dance. That Otherwise, you can think of, we are kind of like puppets being manipulated by the karma of our genes and our environment. and It's nothing like liberation. The last of the five hindrances is the hindrance of doubt comes out in relationship, uh, sometimes it comes out not in relationship in self-doubt or path doubt or dharma doubt. This is the wrong teacher, this is the wrong spiritual practice, it's the wrong job, but once again I've made the wrong mistake, I self-doubt. It comes out in relationship where we think I've chosen once again the wrong person. It's the wrong person. I'll get another person, that'll be better than this person. So there's a way in which all of those hindrances play out in relationship to that person. If this person uh, were loving to me, this lust would not be such a problem. If this person weren't so irritating, I wouldn't fight with them. Uh, if this, uh, uh, if the, if the this relationship wasn't taking so much out of me, I'd have more energy. I mean, there's a way to manipulate those hindrances around so that they are caused by the relationship rather than reflecting in the relationship. What's your question? Uh, It was certainly my experience at least once in my life in a relationship that I didn't listen to the voice of doubt nearly enough. Uh And it was not a a problem of too much doubt but not paying enough attention to the real doubt. Okay, no, I'm just going to get up to that part about the question of not paying attention to the voice of doubt. Doubt, of all the hindrances, is the most complex to recognize. Because sometimes, I'm not sure it's doubt as much as discriminating awareness that, uh, that presents itself in terms of doubtful thoughts. Uh-oh, maybe I made the wrong choice here. It actually may be a discriminating awareness. And the problem of doubt, which the, the, the scripture talks about is slippery energy that doesn't stay on track, is that it doesn't act soon enough, is what you're saying. On, to, on discriminating awareness. And instead of saying, you know what, I made a wrong choice, we fool around for a long time with doubt about it and don't move. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 1, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.